Geoglitch and welcome back to Geoglitch Ministries or welcome to Geoglitch Ministries if it is your first time. I hope you find today's sermon enjoyable but more so I hope you find it edifying and even convicting. If you are a non-believer I hope you stick around and I hope that God uses this sermon in your life to bring you to the faith. God bless and enjoy. So we are back now in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And the first, we're still in chapter 4. In the first message on chapter 4, we did the first 13 um, verses. And in the second, we did two more verses, bringing us up to 15. And today we are going to be doing another 15 verses. We are going to be doing verses 16 to 30. So, let's begin. Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, ending at verse 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious works that were coming from his mouth words that were coming from his mouth and they said is not this joseph's son and he said to them doubtless you will quote to me this proverb physician heal yourself what we have heard you did at capernaum do here in your hometown as well and he said truly i say to you no prophet is acceptable in his hometown but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time, and the prophet, in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Neman and Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, they went away. He went away. Excuse me. This is quite an interesting passage. This is the first sermon we hear from Jesus. So, let's go through it. We see in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And it was his custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and preach. Now, this was a custom of a lot of rabbis. Um, it wasn't necessarily uncommon for a wandering rabbi to be in town and if he was in town in the synagogue 
would usually, not always, but a lot of the time, let that rabbi preach as a guest preacher. So Jesus isn't doing anything mad here. There's nothing out of the ordinary so far. There's no real reason for anyone in the congregation to think there's something strange going on. It's just another rabbi, another guest speaker. Only difference is this time they know the speaker. They know who he is because he grew up in their town. And he got the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Go there now. Isaiah sixty one, chapter sixty one, verses one and two. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. It's interesting, Jesus leaves off the vengeance part. He doesn't say anything about that. He doesn't mention the vengeance and I'm sure people would have wondered at that. But then he speaks and he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You are hearing the scripture being fulfilled. What does he say? What does the scripture say? The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. I am anointed. I am chosen. To proclaim good news to the poor. That's poor in terms of monetarily poor, poverty stricken, that sort of thing. Also spiritually poor. Those who do not know the truth of God. It continues, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And reconcile, uh, sorry, and recovering of sight to the blind. To set liberty to those who are oppressed to claim, proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus quotes the verse, but he leaves out the part of wrath. See, a lot of his listeners at the time would have been hoping for the coming of Messiah. And as part of that, would have been hoping for his wrath on Gentiles. Not reading that, not realizing that his wrath would be to all unsaved. And that some Gentiles would be saved and some Jews would not be. So Jesus, he's quoting mainly from what we might consider the nice parts of the passage, the parts that aren't perhaps going to stir up anything, any sort of ill will, preaching a nice wholesome message, leaving out God's judgment. Not to say that we do leave out God's judgment, but just that at this particular time, it was not important to his message. Jesus did preach God's judgment. He preached more on hell than anyone else. He preached more on hell than he preached on heaven. But at this particular time, he did not preach on judgment because he knew the people he was talking to would hear him say that and assume he was talking about the judgment that they believe was coming to all Gentiles. So he quotes this part of scripture 
And then he says, it applies to me. Now, I don't believe that what we get near today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I don't believe that was the entire sermon. I don't believe he just said a handful of words. I was like, hmm, that's grand. I believe he did keep going. He did keep preaching. And as he was preaching, some whisperings rose up. People saying, is not this Joseph's son? Now, we don't hear it here, but there are other times throughout the Gospels where Jesus is questioned, or his family is brought into it. Is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Mary's son? Are his brothers and sisters not here with us? I bring that up mainly to point out how there are verses that clearly say Jesus had siblings, which means that the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is taught by the Catholic Church, cannot be true. People say, oh no, it, it means brothers spiritually, but it, it names people who were actually Jesus' real-life siblings and who at the time did not even believe his message, so it can't mean spiritual brothers. And others say it simply means cousin, but I don't believe that's what the word means. Um, the Greek word, taking theology out of it uh, for a minute, I believe the Greek word does just translate to brothers and sisters. And at the same time, I don't understand why that many of his cousins will be gathering with what would be their aunt and uncle, but without their own parents. I don't know why all of those cousins would just be with Joseph and Mary. If it was Joseph and Mary's children, it makes sense for them to be around. But if it was Joseph and Mary and a bunch of their nieces and nephews, it doesn't make so much sense when you really think about it. The most logical conclusion, when you look at it properly and you put theology aside, and you just look at, you, you try to exegete instead of eisegete, you try and get something out of the verse instead of putting something into it, you see that Jesus had siblings, he had brothers, he had sisters, which disqualifies the perpetual virginity of Mary the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary disqualifies it from even possibly being somewhat conceivable as a doctrine. Of course, the, we can do the same with a lot of Catholic teachings, but I won't go into that here. So the people are questioning him and say, Is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus says, Doubtless he will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. At this stage, though Luke himself has not gone into any great detail about the miracles of Jesus, he has been performing them. I believe by this stage, the wedding in Cana has already taken place and some other miracles as well. And at no stage are these miracles questioned. There's never a point where anyone says, do this or I won't believe. They just say, oh, do it here. They want to see the miracles, but they don't necessarily have trouble believing that they happened. So they're not really asking for proof. But just keep, keep this idea of miracles in mind. I will return to it in a moment. Jesus says, 
Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And then he goes on to give examples of Elijah and Elisha and so on. And what he's saying is, I understand. He's telling the people, I understand. You know me, some of you watch me grow up, you might have minded me as a child while the parents are doing something or whatever. You saw me grow from a child, from an infant to a boy to a man. So he's recognizing that these people saw him grow up and they're recognizing how hard it might be for them to accept the claims he is making. Because if someone comes in from out of town and says, that they've done all these great things and so on and so forth. It's a bit easier to believe than someone you know and you've known for years who went away for a few months and came back and was making the same claims. When we don't know a person, it's easier to believe the claims that they make sometimes when they're something like this, something that are very big claims, but within the realm of possibility. The claim that Jesus had done a miracle would have been a very big claim, but a claim that everyone listening would have considered possible. A claim that they would have considered even reasonable. But not a claim that they would want to believe of someone who they had watched growing up. Because there's some bias there. As Jesus says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And in that, Jesus calls himself a prophet in giving people leeway and saying, I understand you're not going to believe me because of this bias that people seem to have. In that way, I'm like all other prophets because no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So he's calling himself a prophet. And he's comparing himself to other prophets. And now it's starting to click with people, what he said, because he preached, saying essentially, this verse in Isaiah, messianic prophecy, talking about me. But they didn't quite understand that until he started to compare himself to prophets. And when they heard these things, and all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill, on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff for passing through their midst, he went away. Here we see an example of how seriously people took false prophecy, that when they thought Jesus was a false prophet, they got ready to kill him. I don't think that's a practice we should carry on to this day, but I do wish people would still take false prophecy seriously. In any case, once it's clicked for them, what Jesus has said, they get upset. Now, when it comes to preaching sermons, a lot of the time, the unbeliever will have one of three reactions. Number one, they will be convicted. Now, this isn't the case for every sermon, but a lot of the time it is. Number one, they will be convicted. They'll realize I am a sinner. In need of salvation and Christ died to provide me that salvation. Number two, they will be angered. They do not, or they have not been elected. They are not one of the saints and so 
they hear the gospel and it is offensive to them and they do not want to hear it. They don't want to hear anything like that and it upsets them. And number three, they have basically no reaction at all. Because the sermon didn't say anything convicting or upsetting. Now, you know, sometimes that's going to happen in a sermon. Sometimes you're going to preach a sermon about something and it's not all that convicting. It's not all that upsetting. That's fair enough, it'll happen. Doesn't necessarily mean the person preaching it is a false preacher. But if it's every sermon, particularly if you aim to make every sermon like that, you've got a problem. If you can think of a preacher and you listen to, I don't know how many sermons or a whole bunch of sermons from them and you've never once gone away feeling, you know what, I think I need to make a change. Not every time, but at least a few were thinking, oh, that was, was really upsetting. If the sermons you listen to never elicit that reaction, then that's bad. And if the preacher openly admits to trying to avoid that and just wanting to keep everybody happy, that's also quite bad. In fact, I'd say it's, it's worse. Jesus didn't mind preaching things that were convicting and upsetting. Even here, even though he left out the part, not ignoring it or trying to hide it, he just didn't include the part of his quotation of Isaiah that included God's wrath, he still managed to preach a sermon that was convicting and that was upsetting. And when he was questioned, he continued to preach the truth, relying on the truth to get his point across. We go back to them asking him to do miracles. At that very moment, Jesus could have done literally anything within logical possibilities. So when we, when we say God can do anything, we mean he can, we can, he can do anything that's logically possible. So, for example, he can make a hundred fish appear out of nowhere. He cannot make a circular triangle with 15 points. Because the second, I mean, the first one is logically possible, though physically impossible. Therefore, God can still do it. The second is both logically and physically impossible. That's not a restriction on God, that's just how the world works. If you had something with more than three sides, it could no longer be called a triangle, so it's not logically possible, so there you go. But he could have done pretty much anything. He could have flew around the room, he could have recited all of their names and all of their life stories, maybe less impressive considering that he'd known a lot of them. He could have made something appear, made something disappear, teleported. He didn't. He just preached the truth. Because Jesus knew something a lot of people today don't know. And that is that the word of God 
is what con is what convicts sinners. The word of God is what changes people's hearts. The word of God is what convinces people of the truth. Miracles are cool and all, but it's the gospel that saves. The gospel is the power of salvation, not miracles. And there's a reason why when we look at great evangelists, we look at people like, or say great evangelists, evangelists who had great impacts, we look at people like, say, Billy Graham, Jonathan Edwards, people who converted so many people in their own lives, or who God used to convert so many people, but who never performed miracles. Billy Graham, I believe he was a charismatic, but you would never see him up on stage speaking tongues. Throwing his coat around at people, you certainly wouldn't see that for Jonathan Edwards. And others. And these people to this day are remembered as brilliant evangelists. Do you know who isn't remembered as a brilliant evangelist? Oral Roberts. Benny Hinn, though he's still alive, no one uh, except for the people who unfortunately still fall for his nonsense would consider him a brilliant evangelist. The best evangelists opened the Bible and preached from it. They didn't rely on themselves, their own abilities or miracles which I don't believe people today can perform miracles, but they didn't rely on trying to perform miracles. They relied on the word of God to do what God said it would do. And that's what Jesus is doing here. They ask him for a miracle. He gives them the gospel. And they get angry because of it, because the true gospel message is upsetting to unbelievers. And they get so upset that they try and kill him. But he manages somehow to slip away in all the confusion. So I'll leave you with this. We don't need miracles to convict the unbelievers. We don't need great big shows of anything. We just need the gospel. I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you would like some other ways of consuming G-Witch Ministries, then go to the links in my About section on my YouTube channel, and you will find my website, my TikTok, my Instagram, and my Spotify, where you can find either snippets of these sermons or the full sermons. If you would like to finance these sermons or help me monetarily, then you can also find my Patreon. You don't have to do this, but it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for watching. God bless. And son of the